0: Hello, welcome to The Theology Podcast. It's great to have you here for this episode. Uh, I'm C.R. Wiley, I'm a pastor, I serve at Church of the Pacific Northwest, and I've written a number of things, and I'm currently working on a book entitled uh, How to Defeat the New Communism in Your Spare Time. Uh, It's a little pithy little book.
1: (laughs) Anyway, that's tongue in cheek. Enough about me, let's kick it over to you, Tom. I'm Tom Price. I teach systematic theology, Christian ethics, philosophy, and other things. I'm working on several books too. I know I have a patient audience, but that's okay. <laughs> I, I am I am in a formative process myself, ever learning and praying to consistently have something to say.
0: <laughs> you know, good things come to those who wait, and <laughs> that's right. People are waiting for you, Tom. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> All right,
2: Glad I'm Glenn Sunshine. I'm a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview, Ministry Associated Reflections Ministries, and a professor emeritus of history at Central Connecticut State University.
0: Okay, okay, fun, fun, fun. Anyway, it's my day, and I want to talk about vitalism. Now, the uh, article that uh, we're all responding to is found on Substack. It's something that was written by Matthew B. Crawford perhaps uh my favorite public intellectual these days. Um we've talked about his work before. I'd love to get him on the show sometime. But he's best known for his book Shop Class of Soulcraft. But he's got a couple of other books that haven't done quite as well but are just as rich. Uh one of those is entitled The World Outside Your Head, <laughs> which is <laughs> his critique of uh Kant <laughs> and uh the legacy of Kantianism. And then um, why We Drive, which is his pushback on what you could say is the trend in autom- automotive uh, in engineering, but just in general with regard to AI, uh, kind of uh, taking the the world of sort of manual competence out of our hands and uh, handing everything over to machines. Um, so he's actually advocating uh, the value of actually driving a f- you know, a car with your own hands <laughs> and, uh, and your own feet. He's, he's a, he's a proponent of uh, manual transmissions and I'm a f- fan of those as well. <laughs> but anyway, um, I've, I've always, well, my first encounter with him, uh, in his writing of course was Shop class of soul craft. And that was based on an article. I think he published in, um, the new Atlantis, if I remember correctly, but, I, the, the, one of the reasons I've identified with him is because, um, well, in part, his childhood was a, a little bit like mine. Um, he's the child of academics. Uh, both of his parents taught at Berkeley uh, in California. He grew up sort of in that, you know, bohemian space that <laughs> Berkeley is known for. And he rebelled. So here's the, here's the thing. If your, your parents are hippies, what do you do to rebel? Well, Matthew Crawford uh, subscribed to Soldier of Fortune magazine, <laughs> started working on cars, and became an electrician.
1: <laughs> that that'll, is, show that,
0: right, that'll show him. That's right. That'll show him. He's a remarkably intelligent man, uh, and because he was drawn to you know the world of you know physical uh, work, he reflected on it. Uh, he brought his intelligence to it and made it. An, a really strong case for the value of, you know, working with your hands and manual competence. And anyway, um, not to be uh, sort of uh, outshone by his parents, he did go on to get his Ph.D. <laughs> got it in uh, political philosophy, University of Chicago, which isn't too shabby. Anyway, um, he still writes. He's got this substack that he uh, has. We'll have a link to it. In the show notes, unfortunately, you'll only be able to sample it, and you know it's it's essentially a you know an article intended for his subscribers there. But the sample that uh, you get might just tempt you to become a subscriber, and I think that's a great thing. I mean, I, yeah. it's it's really kind of a marvelous thing that intellectuals can do this t- these days. You know, yeah. and not be beholden to you know publications or you know. Yeah think tanks or, you know, academic positions. They can actually go out and make a living if they can build a significant audience just through their writing and people can, you know, support them directly. And I, 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 support a number of people this way, but anyway, that's that. So the, the, the subtitle of the article, which is entitled what is vitalism is a response to the over administration of life. Response to the overadministration of life. Now, you guys have had a chance to look at it a little bit. Any thoughts that maybe come to your mind right off the bat before I jump in and start reading some things from it that we can respond to?
1: I, I, I think from the from the start, it reminded me something of you know, kind of brought me back to my own childhood, with especially the the kind of the way in which uh, you know boys at play in in their imagination and um, in their competitiveness, kind of. As you started to grow, became certain forms of argument, challenge, and debate, and an insult, right? And yeah, that that's insult, a, that's the best part, <laughs> it did. And that, and that insult kind of prepped you for the rigors, interestingly, of even academic life. Where right. you know now, I think you say anything challenging, people fall apart and need counseling. But then it was, it was just part of the the sport, if you will, right. to kind of uh, challenge you and uh you know make you you know form yourself and your thought uh this
0: this reminds me of of something lou brock said i don't know if you guys remember lou brock he (laughs) was a famous bass stealer, played for the st louis cardinals and after he retired he was asked in an interview what do you miss most about you know being a professional (laughs) ball player he said the insults. We would just sit <laughs> on the bench and rag on each other all day. <laughs> and I get it. I, I remember right. one time at a church I served, you know, I'd have these uh, men's breakfasts once a month. And and then we had a situation where uh, we had a woman's Bible study that— we had a woman who was leading it and she was unable to do it for a while. And the, and the women were kind of beside themselves and wondering what would they would do. And I said, I'll, I'll step in for a little while <laughs> and, you know, kind of fill the gap. So I got to lead the women's Bible study and the men's prayer breakfast. And let me tell you, they were totally different worlds. <laughs> and a, a typical conversation at the men's prayer breakfast would begin with, uh, Hey, Bob, you better cut back on those pancakes. They're starting to show, <laughs> bud. <butt." laughs> and, and then, uh, and the woman's Bible study it would, all, it would all be up talk. <laughs> oh, you look so nice. I love that blouse. <laughs> I said, this is, this is surreal. <laughs> yeah. they actually, this actually is very relevant to, to the conversation or the article. Uh, yeah. we'll get
2: to that in a minute, but anything you have there, Glenn? Yeah. Um, there, there is a technical definition of vitalism in philosophy, which is not the one that he's using. Right. Um, mm-hmm. But it's actually very similar to the way vitalism was used back in the episode we did about Vikings, yeah, which was talking about the the um, the end of Viking vitalism. It's it, it's a different kind of thing than the technical philosophical use. Yeah, um, yeah and also, but, it, yeah, it reminded yeah.
0: me too of the of the Greek term thumos, you know, spiritedness, mm-hmm. you know, just yeah. kind of like uh, getting out there and doing stuff and proving yourself and stuff like that.
2: Yeah, uh, the the technical definition we might as well get that on on, sure. on board here, so we can dismiss it. Uh, is the, the idea that there it, it's almost like animism, that mm-hmm. that uh, every top is Latin for life. Everything is alive. Yeah, you right. know there, there's a they kind of life Vita. in everything. So <laughs> it it borders on animism. Uh, that's yeah. not what he's talking about.
0: No, no, he's talking more about well, thumos, I think, and yeah, that and doing stuff. Um, do you have something else there, Tom? I could see you were kind of... No, chipped. no,
1: I was just thinking of the terms with the philosophy, Elon Vital, the, the whole schools of thought that those, those come out of it. This is, has much more to do with vitality, I think. And, and, yeah, and yeah. This, yeah. This, particularly this, boyishness. yeah boyish you know the stuff that you know
0: we can all remember with great fondness from the from the playground and when nobody was no adults were around and we were just (laughs) doing our thing so uh this is how the the article begins the essay begins uh uh he begins with a quotation "Uh, children in their games are wont to submit to rules which they have themselves established and to punish misdemeanors which they have themselves defined. Thus did Tocqueville marvel at Americans' habit of self-government and the Mm -hmm. temperament it both required and encouraged from a young age. the same spirit, he said, pervades every act of social life the unsupervised games and rituals of children in the 19th century was nicely depicted with comic exaggeration and Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn. We know those stories, yeah, you know? Yeah. I don't know if, the, if if kids still read that stuff anymore or are required to read it. I think it's kind of, yeah, it's kind of taboo now. I yeah. Think. Because of, uh, you know, like an Dated accurate language. depiction of like, uh, what slaves had to go through and how they were spoken to. <laughs> yeah.
1: That's great. You know? yeah.
0: Anyway. Um, he goes on to say, in his review of the 1993 book on the history of masculinity by one E. Anthony Rotundo, I think that's how it's pronounced, Christopher Lash, who, by the way, is another uh, really luminary for me. I, I, if if, li- if podcast listeners haven't checked out Christopher Lash, you, you know, they really need to. But he goes on to say, writes that boys, quote, challenge each other to spontaneous feats of daring and agility. Act... Uh, acted out stories of heroic adventure and collaborated in the enforcement of an infr- informal code of honor that stressed courage, loyalty, and stoic endurance of pain. I remember that as a kid, and I still try to embody those things myself. You know, if I feel like, "Hey Wiley, you know, man up. You're you're not you're not uh, being courageous at the moment. You're you're recoiling from a challenge or." If I feel like a friend has been betrayed, my own loyalty is stirred up to come to his defense, right? You know, that kind of stuff. And endurance of pain, you know, there's just a lot of things in life that hurt and you just have to just live with it, get over it. Don't coddle yourself, that kind of stuff. So this is, now getting back to the article here uh, or the essay, this is uh, Crawford responding to these statements. Such patterns of self-directed activity persisted into young adulthood in informal associations such as debate societies. Quote, the clash of wits between friends recalled the physical combat of loyal playfellows in boyhood, mixing affection with attack. Now, isn't that a beautiful statement? There's, th- that's boyhood <laughs> right there. Boys, I remember my favorite game as a boy was army you know, and I, I, this brings another fun episode to mind. So when uh, we had our first child, our oldest son, Caleb, um, my wife was really into, you know, constructive play things. She didn't want anything that was dangerous or violent or anything (laughs) around. And I I just told her, we'll see how this goes. (laughs) So I didn't like push it. I just was kind of like waiting for the boyishness to come to the surface with my son. And about the time he was four years old, he had a, a big set, of Lego blocks, you know the, the <laughs> mega kind. Oh yeah. Anyway, we were sitting in the living room one day, and and my son comes out with this enormous thing he'd made, and it was a gun. And we didn't <laughs> even watch television. Nevertheless, my son my son was inspired to shoot my wife. Bang bang. <laughs> of course, my wife's feelings were t- were hurt. You know, this in her mind, this was a demonstration of I you know sort of anger and hatred and my, I just laughed. I said, uh, you give up yet <laughs> for a little boy. This is a, this is a uh, demonstrating a desire to play and have a little fun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, the chicks don't get it, but that's okay. That's why we love them. They're not like us, but
1: any thoughts on that? I th- yeah, I think that, I mean, the, the whole notion of kind of rough housing and, and, uh, Trying out things that are over the top in that space of of where where the real consequence isn't going to hit you upside the head um, also <laughs> also allows you somewhat to get enough of a consequence from it. Usually, this is the participation in in enough reality to where it's forming you sure. to learn where those boundaries are. I remember playing mumbly peg.
0: You guys ever played mumbly peg? Oh, yeah. (laughs) So describe Mumbly Plague uh, there, Glenn, to our benighted audience.
2: Well, the the way we did it in Boy Scouts when the leaders weren't around um, (laughs) was you would you'd have your feet spread apart and you'd throw a knife. And if you could get it into the ground, you had to pull your foot in. You know, the other person would have to pull their foot into where the knife is. And the object is to get the feet closer and closer (laughs) together until you don't want to be there anymore when they're throwing the knife. And
0: then chicken out. And then, of course, if you chicken out, then you're the object of scorn and then everybody's laughing at you. I
2: I always relied on the fact that I had really solid boots. That's right.
0: (laughs) That's right. You didn't want to play mumbly pig barefoot.
2: (laughs) Yeah, that would have been a different animal. (laughs) <laughs> that's right, that's right. right. Uh, um, Yeah, you know, Chris, Chris. One of the things it, it I think it's related. Um, I, I just ran into an article the other day about um, the difference between male to male communication and female to female communication, and they did it on the basis of how much of it is giving information versus how much of it is talking about feelings, emotions, or whatever, and. Men, when they're with their friends, overwhelmingly talk about information, facts, news, what's going on in sports, something like that. Women, not so overwhelmingly, but women have a much stronger emphasis on the emotional um, feelings, you know, those kinds of things. Um, This explains why, well, the argument was the idea of mansplaining. (laughs) <laughs> is is a complete misunderstanding. Right. What is happening is that the man is interacting with the woman the way he would with another <laughs> that's, man. That's right. And the woman <laughs> takes this, you know, and granted, okay, so it is true that the man is failing in cross-cultural communication. (laughs) He's not
0: empathetic enough.
2: (laughs) But but, but equally, the woman saying it's mansplaining is also failing in cross-cultural communication because she doesn't understand what he's doing and why he's doing it.
0: Yeah, and (laughs) I think partly this is due to the fact that we live in a society that doesn't accept the differences that, you know, men and women, characterize men and women, and think of that as sort of um, some kind of offensive thing to think about. This reminds me of a meme I came across the other day, and it's it went something like this. Uh, I'm trying to explain to my wife that she got mansplaining wrong. <laughs> In other words, she, she defined it and she got it wrong, and so he's trying to mansplain it to her. <laughs> and it's this conundrum, obviously. Yeah.
2: But anyway, but th- this connects in though with the idea of yeah. debate and things like that yeah. that you know this is the extension of the way you sort of compete and and uh, as kids you do it in debate and then you know as adults it may not always be debate, but frequently well if I got into a conversation with you Chris about the Red Sox <laughs> it would it would devolve into insults pretty quickly, I suspect <laughs> You know what I mean but well, yeah, it's sure. just the way we interact.
0: Yeah. It's, and it's fun. It's, and I think guys kind of just, you know, you can take things too far. I mean, I've, I've been in these situations where, you know, you're having some fun and then you realize you get into something that's just taking it a little too far. And then you just back off. You realize, okay, we can't go that far with this, but, but yeah, it's part of the fun. Uh, and I think this sort of playful, um, sort of, uh, warfare plays out in different ways. And it's, it's, i think you know good that he brought in debate um you know you think about sort of the the sphere of your strength so you know a big guy who's physically strong that's where he's going to want to compete with other other people that's because that's where his his strengths lie a guy who maybe is small thin but intelligent he wants to debate he wants to exercise his strengths intellectually he'll he'll concede you know, the, the, weightlifting contest, but he'll immediately call the, uh, the weightlifter into the other room to try to debate with him about something that he can feel like he's likely to win at.
2: <laughs> Why am I thinking of the princess bride and Vizzini? <laughs> <That's> right. <laughs> <laughs> right. 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 But it, 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 it's, it's not as though, uh, this is something that
0: doesn't apply broadly. Uh, it, pl- it applies to generally speaking to men, uh, and uh, with whatever, you know, strengths that they've got, you know, there's this sort of playful, it happens with STEM guys who are into the STEM world and all that kind of stuff. So now, you know, getting back to the, the essay, the thing that Crawford is zeroing in on is the disappearance of sort of, uh, places where this can happen. This sort of unsupervised, uh, self sort of adjudicated or or uh, monitored or controlled activity that well just anybody is able to enter into um but he's begun he began the you know the this this with um boys uh and there's this marvelous uh picture of boys playing stickball that uh is at the beginning of the article but to get to where he, where, where he uh, is zeroing in and concern, and with his concerns, it, it, let me read this next paragraph. But by the end of the 19th century, such autonomous organizations of young men were fading away. It's interesting he goes back that far. Quote, education was increasingly confined to the classroom, antagonistic rivalry to the play field, formal pedagogy, Replace spontaneous play and self culture. You see, you see this with sports, and it's a real shame. When I was a kid, you know, I get on my Schwinn Stingray. (laughs) You remember those Schwinn Stingrays with the banana seats and (laughs) sissy bars? And I would head on down (laughs) to the local, you know, baseball field. And I knew there there'd be some guys there. I didn't have to like wonder. It was just sort of like, of course, everybody's out of school it's going to be some guys. So I'd go down there and I'd, sometimes I'd know who they were. Sometimes I didn't. And we'd get into a pickup game and we'd, you know, play a game with however many guys we had. Let's say we only had, you know, 10 guys. It means five in each team. We'd figure out how to make it work as a, as a real game, even though we couldn't play everybody in the field. You know, we'd only hit to one field or something like that, or one side of the baseball diamond. And, uh, it was, it was a lot of fun. It was, it was in, and, and and there was a kind of joy in managing it ourselves and um participating and and refereeing or umpiring each other you're out no i'm not yes you are you know that kind of thing uh, now that's largely gone first of all you don't see kids riding around on their schwins which is a real shame <laughs> but uh you also uh don't find kids without adults around much um You know, most of the time a kid learns baseball these days with a lot of supervision, whether it's, you know, his dad or, you know, sometimes mom trying to substitute, um, or, you know, little league or whatever. And there's just not a whole lot of things that are happening just spontaneously. Everything is managed. Everything is controlled. Everything is supervised. Everything is coached. You don't have, you don't have the opportunity to, to kind of learn on your own. Um, and I remember, uh, not too long ago, I was listening to a, uh, an interview with, uh, the, the coach of the, of the men's American soccer team. Uh, he's a guy who actually grew up in Germany and grew up poor in Germany was part of the national t- German team. He's come to the United States, been naturalized. He's American now. I'm um, just trying to remember his name, but it's, I'm just, I want to say Karl Hans Rumeniger, but it's not him. But anyway. Uh, he was talking about the the difficulty of working with American athletes. And he said, the difference between guys that I work with in the United States uh, and kids from places like Brazil or El Salvador is that they've never played pickup. They, They never just sort of experimented on their own. They were always supervised. They're healthy. They're big. They're strong. They're fast. They're, you know, everything physically that you'd want, but they don't have that kind of killer uh, kind of intuition of what to do when you don't have somebody telling you what to do, you know, just kind of going out there and and doing it. Yeah. I can see you're chomping at the bit there, Tom.
1: For me, it strikes back a lot of childhood. Like you said, I I think we, I, I mean, my, both of my parents at, at a given point were working, and you know we were latchkey kids, but we we met up with all the other kids in the neighborhood whose parents were working, and uh, we did, yeah we got we used our imagination. We built things in the woods. We went into our parents' cool shed and took things. You know, built things. <laughs> but then yeah, we have these games like we when we played backyard football. I mean, it was not touch. <laughs> right. And I even remember girls from the neighborhood. I mean, everyone just went out and just played hard games and you know and and people got hurt you know it it, it happened and and you still got up and played the next time you were out there you know and there there is something something to that kind of uh engagement with each other and and i think the other point was is i remember you would sometimes just create games out of nowhere but once you kind of had a consensus of rules you did kind of all stick to them yeah and it was a fascinating thing
0: yeah well that idea though that you you're the you're the people who've made up the rules and now you're going to enforce them that's yeah. democracy yeah yeah we're talking about yeah. how it's supposed to work today yeah. we just kind of sit around passively waiting for some some expert to tell us what to do yeah and it's, yeah. it's kind of pitiful
1: yeah, and education has really, you know, went that direction. So you're looking for, you're almost looking for someone to come in and help people do things, that, which would have been commonplace to even someone who just had a third grade or, you know, seventh grade education at a previous well, think, time. Think, think,
0: think about how this relates to music, too. So, for example, um, I'm all for music uh, being taught in schools and things like that. My My wife, for goodness sake, is a piano teacher. You know, you've taught guitar, Tom. That, that's great. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with it. But at the same time, think about all the great folk music that uh, we enjoy in the United States. All the different traditions, everything from Zydeco to blues to bluegrass. You know, to even New England sea shanties. I mean, it's just like all over the place. And uh, this is stuff that spontaneously emerged within a folk a, a community. You know, a tradition it wasn't as though some highly trained Juilliard grad developed bluegrass or the three fingers Scruggs style picking approach to the, to the banjo or something like that. No, as some guy sitting out on his front porch, just experimenting with the sounds he could make
1: forever. (laughs) Yeah. And they, they, they start with an idea. And then locally when they play together, someone else is fascinated. They pick it up, they take it, they develop it. And then they keep, it keeps and you develop, whole traditions. Um, and like you say, there's, there's certain kind of internalized rules that you in, yet it's not a static tradition. Like no, no tradition is, it has developments that unfold within it. And I think this is where there's a, there is a, there's a give and take between reality, our engagement with it, our action being formed and shaped by it, but also our contribution to it. And this is where you do get the thick stuff of real education and humanities. Um, participating um, in in reality um, in ways that isn't just being taught what to think, taught told what to read.
0: Yeah, yeah, and you know it goes way beyond music and sports. I mean, I think we see it in 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 just about anything. There's this community that forms around a particular um, activity. Yeah, there there can be some mentoring. Yeah, there are some general rules, perhaps, that you need to follow and and you need to know about. But the 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 art, the beautiful sort of creative sort of cutting edge of anything, is this experimental thing that everybody is kind of looking at and working on together and trying out. That's what the early days of Silicon Valley even were about. Yeah. You know, we don't yeah. we don't have those anymore. Hmm. Anyway,
2: um, anything you wanted to throw in there, Glenn? well i i was i was thinking about the musical context i mean i i played some jazz through high school and college and a lot of that was on you know the the foundation for it was a, a bunch of us that got together under um, one guy's sort of leadership and we just sort of played things and tried it out and then that group uh, kind of broke up and there was another one that got together and we were just, you know, we, we just hold these jam sessions at people's houses.
1: You know? Yeah.
0: Yeah, and that's and, probably how you developed your skills was in the actual act of trying to make music that you that sounded good. <laughs>
2: yeah. And you, to, to some extent, you know, you, you see, actually there, there's sort of an interesting history here in the context of Renaissance fairs. Because, what ha- you know, the development of world music happened at a Renaissance fair in California. That's where it originated, because you had all these different people with different sort of musical backgrounds coming together, listening to each other, playing with each other. And what emerged was this idea of world music. You know, yeah. so, it's, you know, but but that was in the 60s, maybe 70s. Yeah.
0: yeah. 70s and that, probably. Now, now we have auto-tune, and uh, <laughs> you don't even need to sing. Yeah. Carry a tune. Yeah.
1: But it, but it is interesting, you know, mentioning it, you know, where you talk about not only the design of instruments, and so that's its own craft, and that's its own um, skill, and and there's there's even kind of things that work with, you know, work with the reality going on there, and then of course the physics you have to, you know, negotiate in order to create the sound and range and all all of that, um, but but there is a way in which when people fall upon these instruments, there there is something uh, that they, skills they have to develop and hone and work at rigorously. And a lot of times, like you say, um, in certain contexts, it is very, it is, oh, I saw a guitar sitting around, nobody was playing in the house. I picked it up and started fiddling with it. And all of a sudden, that having to force myself in relationship to it starts the spring, you know. A formation of the person that really there's a connection going on with, with wider reality, sound, time, tempo,
2: physics, yeah, it, yeah, embodiment. This st- <laughs> yeah. This okay, is stuff now,
0: that, go ahead. Go ahead.
2: That, yeah. Now in terms of you have to learn the instrument, you got to learn the basics. It doesn't always work that way. Yeah. Um, yeah. My favorite example was um, <laughs> Scotland um, after the battle of Culloden, when Scotland is, is of, uh, basically forced into the union of crowns with England, England banned bagpipes as a weapon of war. Okay. Mm. And they thought that what they would do is bring a bunch of violins into Scotland (laughs) and then people would learn to play classical music. (laughs) What you got were people in Scotland softening their bows and trying to imitate bagpipes on fiddles. <laughs> <laughs> and we're no longer talking violins here. We're talking fiddles. Yeah. <laughs> you know? that's, so, that's, and and that creates the whole Scottish uh, the fiddle tradition which passes over into American bluegrass. Yeah. yeah.
0: Well, that's that's fascinating. I I've, I've I've wondered about that relationship between the fiddle and the violin and now I know something more than it, I did.
2: It it it's the same instrument physically. Yeah. Yeah.
0: But a whole different thing approach.
2: Yeah. Yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah. So let me go back to the article here and read a little more, uh, give us a little more to respond to. Um, He says, uh, if the life world means the background patterns of life that are taken for granted, within which one can dwell unmolested, here was a new determination to leave nothing taken for granted, nothing unstudied. What this meant in practice was the colonization of life, or I should say the colonization of life world by organized expertise corresponding to institutional money and power. Uh, life under these conditions feels a bit off, like the opposite of vitality. One's own powers of making sense of the world are somehow disqualified. That is so on the money, yeah. as, as far as I can see. Well, you yeah. uh, Go ahead, Tom.
1: Yeah, I mean, what you see here, I, I, you know, on the from the philosophy of ideas arena, which I kind of use a lot to evaluate, as you see, you know, the notion, the emphasis, the shift, to power, very much voluntarism, and 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 the emphasis on power being kind of what is what is of utmost significant, um, and then then just the detachment related to that, that you have this notion that we we kind of stand apart. We gain control over things. We manage and micromanage, and somehow we're we, this is you know, this is serving the betterment
0: of yeah. Yeah. The things. thing about the thing about that though, Tom, is you're right. From you're, and you're you you're you're addressing the matter from the perspective of the experts, but yeah. what what who the, what happens is is the people who are subject to the experts yeah. are disempowered. They lose power in the arrangement. Yes, that's uh, right. And what I what I think. Crawford is trying to do is make a case for just kind of leaving people alone, yeah, <laughs> for, for one thing, yeah. but also, uh, that it's through the exercise of their own powers
1: yeah. that they
0: become competent, yeah. they, they become the kind of people who can manage their own affairs,
1: yeah. So, what he's, what he's doing is he's retrieving, well, Aristotle in particular, but yeah. he, the, the realist tradition that christianity is developed and, and fostered in which he's not so much the, the the act the talk of power here is not voluntarism but action yeah. and it's action that is connected with reality and all the formation required in, in relationships needed so that he is de- very much about kind of virtue cultivation and ha- uh you know habituation with reality yeah. Um, in fact, his very next sentence says what you just said.
0: <laughs> These are powers that develop naturally through action in the world. Yes. As legitimacy yep. and confidence of, the, of common sense is eroded, uh, the, uh, the field of meaningful action that is open to an individual seems also to shrink. Yeah. Action is reduced to making choices from a menu of presented options. In other words, you know, th- these are the experts. They say, okay, these are the things you can choose. You can yeah. choose A, B, or C. It reminds me when I would t- say to my kids, you can, like, uh, basically the choice was eat your vegetables or sit in the corner. Yeah. Those are the only options. Yeah. It never occurred to them to challenge me and say, what about option three, which is neither. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah. Anyway, yeah. but... Um, there, there's another implication to this, though, that that goes beyond just sort of the uh, practical issues of trying to raise boys. Um, I think that this is also at the root of the way our culture has shrunk reality. Yeah. So that, um, you know, I, I don't think anybody ever really, you know, believed this on, on a large scale level. But the rhetoric is uh, materialism. Yeah. it's um, you know matter and energy is all that exists because these are things that we can see, we can quantify, we can study, we can analyze to some extent we can control um, it, it there, there's a direct parallel between this way of controlling kids activities you know or yeah, any other yeah. kind of activity and the way we are looking at the world. Um, yeah. you know I, I, I think the the idea of disenchantment, uh, it can be overdone. There, are people who have pointed out that we've never really lost enchantment, but at least on a rhetorical level and on an official level, we have. Yeah. And um, you know, I think that I think that's directly connected with this. I think it's also connected to Dewey's education, which was yeah. designed to produce good little worker bees for industry.
0: Yeah, definitely. And. But- and- and he gets at that, he, you know, mm-hmm. he, he talks about sort of the way people push back. He says, some of us chafe against this, and I believe this is the subterranean source of certain ornery political energies uh, that we call populism. Mm-hmm. Populism often states its opposition to power in epistemic terms as skeptical hostility to experts. Um, what gets lost in all the screeching is that the basic impulse at work here is a positive one which in other words you know people want to have uh control over their own affairs they don't want to just simply hand their lives over to the experts to be managed
1: yeah well the the experts have in a, in a very modern way okay utilizing its its volunteerism it, is they basically cast a spell on things that that forms people interestingly they are about forming people but they form people to think that they're basically the you know the product of or or the creators of what their choice decides and so they like you just said chris they give them choices but these choices are within the boundaries that protect the elite's interest definitely and and what that does is it like like glenn said the the kind of the, the byproduct of that is a shrinking of reality but also the shrinking of the capacity of the agent because here the agent is reduced to choosing among the options that are given to them from the elites <laughs> if you will or right. or the shrinking of reality versus what happens when you actualize all of the your created potential through a truthful enactment of what you're you're created to be when you do that you become, as Tolkien said, co-creators, not merely people waiting around to choose what options they've been given by a shrunken view of, of reality.
0: Yeah. Well, I, th- I he, he he moves on in his essay from childhood into young adulthood, uh, particularly as, as uh, concerns uh, college admissions. But uh, this is a worthwhile matter for us to focus on for a little bit. It relates to everything we've talked about. But what What's occurring is uh, the way, you know, a, a process or, a, or, a, or a sort of a, a what's developing is a, a, a situation or a scheme in which college admissions hmm. is shaping all of the lives of people uh, and their childhoods. So that today people, you know, uh, go about the process of choosing a preschool for their kid based on whether or not it'll help them to gain admission to an Ivy league school, <laughs> just not <laughs> nutty stuff. You know, it's just, you know, it's, it's, you know, I, I remember when I was younger, the subject of college didn't come up until like maybe my freshman year of high school. You know, that was like the, the moment that it was first introduced to me the the, the notion was first introduced to me that you Know if you want to get into college, it's probably a good idea to work at your grades now. <laughs> but yeah. was, I mean, that's fairly well into the game here. <laughs> yeah, that's you know, that's ninth or tenth grade, right? So, but people who uh, are, are trying to shape their lives to make their or the, the lives of their children to make them uh, a, sort of uh, most, I guess, attractive to the college recruiting. Community, uh, just everything is being. I guess they're being groomed, is what they are, uh, for you know, college. Now, speaking or using that term, I know, is brings other things to mind. But that also brings something to mind. I just saw today the, the Daily Wire came out with a, a study. They, they didn't conduct the study; they're just announcing the out or sort of the results of the study. Um, a surprisingly large number of people in the Ivy League schools now are identifying as LGBTQ, whatever. So I think the numbers are up over 30% at Brown. Now, that doesn't surprise me, knowing Brown. I mean, yeah. Brown has always been the school that tries harder because it's not at the top <laughs> and it's, it's got yeah. more to prove. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's it's almost as bad at Yale, almost as bad, at, I mean, at Harvard. It was almost like when you, when you looked at the, Mm-hmm. Schools, the the more prestigious the Ivy, the 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 lower the number was, which was interesting to me. Yeah, but even at Harvard, it was up around twenty percent. Well, especially which is when, just nuts.
1: Yeah, well, when 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 critical theory started to go beyond the the limited boundaries in which it should have stayed, <laughs> um, and started to infect everything else, um, it really it, it besides creating. A lot of pseudo scholarship because that's really what it is a lot of neologisms and developments of words and you know phrases and trend trendiness but disconnected from reality in 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 almost every case um but you you started to get all this the running of departments for grants and funding that were basically promoting that kind of pseudo scholarship
0: but not just the scholarship tom yeah. Uh, the identities. So if I well, want to get yeah. into a school, yeah,
1: absolutely. Uh, is, my,
0: is if I identify my if I identify as bi, is do yeah. my do my uh, chances go up? Well, of course they do.
1: Yeah, and I mean, similar for uh, yeah academic posts are similar. If I put a you know a long earring in and call myself you know Wilhelmina, you, it, this it's is a lot I'm, easier for me to. But this yeah. is the managing process. This is yeah. the whole
0: point. Is so that people yeah. are grooming themselves to be attractive to these schools. Yeah. They're identifying as certain things. It reminds me of Plato and the Republic. Uh, I put <laughs> this up the other day, you know, what's honored in a country is cultivated there. Well, if you if yeah. you honor this stuff, don't yeah. be surprised. I mean, yeah. this, this stupid notion that a lot of folks have that we've inherited from people like Rousseau that we're just little flowers that are just wanting to bloom and whatever <laughs> comes out, is what was always in there. It's just yeah. it's stupid. It's just nonsense. Yeah. And um, what pe- people are learning the hard way is that if you provide incentives, people will do what they need to do. That's I think that's what goes on with a lot of transgender nuttiness yeah. with men getting into women's sports. These yeah. guys were you know, second-tier, third-tier guys in their sport. And uh, when they competed against other men and they go right to the top when they go into a woman's uh uh, yeah. sport. Um, but people, you know, democracy, you know, it's one of the things that Aristotle talked about. He said, you know, societies, I know there are plutocracies, which are ordered by money. Um, yeah. there are aristocracies, which are, you know, based on the notion that some of the virtue of your ancestors has somehow been handed down. Right. And then you've got, uh, democracies, which is people who live for honor, and what happens, you know, we, we've seen this many, time and time again. Let's say some uh, self-made millionaire discovers that he's being snubbed by the local club. He says, well, why, why is this happening? I've got as nice a car as you've got. I live in a, the same neighborhood you live in. What is it about me? Well, you just, you, you just don't have the right uh, fashionable causes. You're not connected to the right people. In other words, there are, there are a, th- a range of things that you can't buy that um, make it possible for you to belong to this group of people. And these are the things that we honor. These are the things that we're looking yeah. for. And then that guy goes nuts trying to f- figure out a way to to pass himself off. And that's what leads to all the jokes about the new rich, right?
2: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. And, and how goofy they get. Yeah. Now, now, did you notice in there, there's a, a contradiction uh, b- built into the very program that you outlined uh, if you're doing Rousseau, it's letting the the person blossom into who they really are, but everything is programmed.
0: That's right, right. Yeah.
2: You know, and yeah, yeah there, there, there's just sort of an in, inherent incoherency to the whole thing. Um, hmm. uh, and, and besides, I'm I'm sort of obligated to. Uh, take a shot at Rousseau whenever I can, but but, go for it, go for it. (laughs) But along with that, you know, one of the questions that, uh, that occurred to me that people need to start asking and really pushing is why are there men's and women's divisions in sports
0: I think we all know, but no one's allowed to say
2: that. Well, (laughs) start pushing them on that issue. Why is it? Because some people identify as one. Well, if they identify as one or the other, what difference does it make if they're the same? You know, if they can do the same things, why not just have one division? Everybody Mm. knows the answer. But no, but this is this is the point where you got to push them. I think rhetorically, I think that that is is. The the break point for a lot of these things. Well, I agree. If, so long as you're not so
0: wedded to the institutions that are promoting the insanity. So I, I you know, I I think we've all seen people who are willing to go off the cliff with the lemmings because they really like being in the group that the lemmings yeah. make make up. I mean, yeah. I, I can think of dozens of instances where people. Just uh, went from being relatively sane to insane because they knew that insanity was like, well, it was uh, it put the price of admission to that group.
2: Yeah. Well, I, I was just thinking about an interview I saw today in which somebody was trying to push, this is in Britain, someone was trying to push him on... How unfair it is to the women swimmers that that William or Leah Thomas is is there. Because I mean he was he, he was literally head and shoulders taller Always than all of them. them and everything else. Yeah. Yeah. And he would not he he would not say it was unfair. He did everything he could to avoid nah. the question. So yeah. I think what you do is you change the question. this is why this is what got yeah. me thinking about this. You just change the question. Why are there men's and women's divisions? Mm -hmm. What is the reason for that? Because once you answer that question, then the transgender thing goes away.
0: Well, uh, yeah, but unless you have mass psychosis. Yeah, well, there's that. (laughs) Uh, Getting back to this article, though, uh, he gets (laughs) into the differences between men and women and how this uh, kind of affects everything. So um, he's he's talking about, uh, at this point in the article, uh, the therapeutic peristate, which is uh, staffed disproportionately by women. Now, what, he, what he's getting at is, well, he goes on to describe what he's getting at. Um, he says, daily life is shot through with uh, ambient pedagog- uh, the, an ambient pedagogical project that works to create the modern subject, meaning modern person, a creature who internalizes the social discipline required by the modern state. In one of the, uh, his Choices formulations, uh, Michael Foucault referred to the, quote, minor civil servant of moral orthopedics, end of quote.
1: That's uh, a typical Foucault. Yeah, right. <laughs>
0: <laughs> They are found in corporate HR, the Office of Student Life in Universities, uh, mandatory, quote, relationships and sexual health education, end of quote, in schools, mm. lifestyle magazines, and countless other, Uh, sites of adjustment. That's an interesting way he puts it, sites of adjustment. According to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, 71% of human resource managers are women. I'm not at all surprised by that. In the University of California system, to take one example, 70% of non-academic staff are women. And in American universities generally, the ratio of administrators to faculty has nearly doubled since 1990. Mm-hmm. So what we've done is we've, we've uh, feminized higher education. We've feminized uh, corporate America through the HR uh, departments and so forth. It goes on to say 67% of those who hold a journalism degree are women. Uh, in psychology, female graduate students outnumber males by three to one. And have done so for more than a decade. Seventy-seven percent of sociology majors are women. Now, there's a theme that we can see here. This is all this stuff is relational uh, that these women are, are, are you know involved with. And this is some. This is sort of uh, you know as I as I take this and as I think about it, what we're seeing is uh, the problem that the problems that occur when you remove. Um, uh, the 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 right sort of sphere in which uh, a certain gift is uh, exercised and used and apply it to something else. So in in neighborhoods, for example, uh, where you have a lot of moms, you know, they're really uh, the glue of those communities. You know, at least they used to be back, back when they were home. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, even today, if I want to know something about somebody or have some sense of how things are going for somebody, I'll often ask my wife, because um, she's got a kind of a, a sense of what's going on because of the conversations that she has and the empathy that she has and and the desire to see people succeed that she has and stuff like that. But this is a very uh, difficult to reconcile with the demands of a high-performance mm-hmm. sort of a meritocracy. Um, in a meritocracy, you know, you either know what uh, what to do, or you don't. You're either competent, or you're not. Uh, yeah. We saw sort of the way this can kind of go uh, crazy with the recent episode with the sub at the you know that we went down to look at the Titanic that that was crushed. Um, the guy who was the owner of the company wanted his company to be inspirational to young people, so he essentially, well. Just hired a lot of young people who didn't know a whole lot. And he had a guy who actually knew something about submarines who told him, you know, you, you, this was basically a death trap. And if you go down in this thing, you're going to die. Uh, and he warned him. He, he wrote reports. And the guy, for all of his expertise and knowledge in this particular area, was fired. So, you know, um, anyway, uh, he, he hurt some feelings. But what he was trying to do is save some lives. But this is the tension. I, I saw it, You know, even as, you know, when my kids were small and they played sports for the town team, uh, at the younger level, you know, you know, ages of, you know, when it came to like baseball, it was very much mom, mom's kind of world. Everybody gets a trophy. Everybody wins. You know, we don't keep score, that kind of stuff. Um, and then, uh, about eight or nine, dad moves in and it's all changed. You know, suddenly these things matter. Strikes are strikes, balls are balls, Mm -hmm. people get, you know, beat bad sometimes <laughs> that's just the way it is yeah, yeah anyway any thoughts on that
1: well i think i mean I think, I think he's on to something especially where you see the the kind of disposition of certain things has definitely shifted i think by that impact i know an experience i had i remember after very rigorous years of the, uh, like my time at Duke, I remember that was kind of head chopping debate in classroom. You could insult and everything else. Um, and then when you got to Britain, cause I did my, was, did, did my, uh, later work in, in UK, you could insult, but you did it very politely. <laughs> no one insults someone like a Brit. <laughs> That's right. You do it, but you, you do it very politely. Um, uh, but but I remember I had a, a student in the programs in Oxford I was teaching in, and she was from the U.S. and she was taking a philosophy class, and I just remember giving feedback on a paper to where I got an email later with a note just saying, "Oh, I just your your criticisms of my work, which they were they were constructive criticisms. They were trying to show them, you know, how this argument could be challenged, ways to address it." Um, But she was just completely bent out of shape and hurt and traumatized. And that was the first time in that kind of environment I had seen someone react like that. And I think from that about that time onwards, it started to show up more and more in universities. What what year was that? Let's see. That would have been around 2004.
0: Okay. Well, that makes sense. Yeah. things were i think things were going awry in the 90s uh yeah but
1: yeah I, it just hadn't hit the the kind of uh the, the rigor that was still expected but yeah but i, I really saw it, it it shift to where you can't now you can't say certain things because it will quote unquote trigger psychological right. pain or hurt right. and, and it's very much the you know the impact of a certain kind of psychology that has just, you know, that was definitely the consequence of a lot of the, the feminist work um, that impacted the.
0: A lot of the cancel culture is driven by uh, the social media presence of women. I don't think there's any debate about that. And, and while Matthew Crawford doesn't get into that uh, matter specifically, he does talk about something that, is relevant to that matter. So let me just quote here again. John Haight, or Jonathan Haight, we, we've talked about him before, yeah. says that among women, you get, quote, a different kind of conflict. There is a greater emphasis on what someone said, which hurts someone else, even if unintentionally. There is a greater tendency to respond to an offense by mobilizing social resources to ostracize the alleged offender. Hmm. this concern with the fence which tends to maintain social cohesion you see that's the upside you see this is yeah. the thing we have to re- remember when we're talking about men and women and these tendencies we're not saying good bad we're saying different there are yeah, pla- yeah there are differences and there are pl- places where these things are really good and then there are places where they're not appropriate and, th- and that's what we're talking about here um also tends to come detached from the question of whether the hurtful thing said was true or not. I mean, it was it true <laughs> doesn't matter. This introduces an element of arbitrariness an invitation to caprice. Notice, uh, that this dynamic in this dynamic, uh, hurt may be attributed, uh, a victim identified as an act of aggression against a, pu- a punitive offender. The great majority, uh, the great majority of women do not seek power within an institution under the banner of woke activism, but most of those who do seek power in this way are women. Hmm. I think that's an interesting thing to to remember. Uh, At the end of his article, uh, he says something that I think uh, is worth keeping in mind when we consider all of this stuff. And it it has to do with the way men respond to women who uh, are, are, pursuing these kinds of, uh, well, they're, they're, they're trying to ostracize or whatever. He says, whatever, whatever else it means, being a responsible man today would seem to involve a tricky double task. First, to be respectful and protective of women in private and two, to confidently disregard women's tears in public. See, I think that what we're dealing with uh, sometimes when we have guys who jump on the bandwagon with this stuff is the white knight phenomenon that people in the manosphere talk about all the time. And what you you have with that is actually another uh, positive instinct. You know, Mm -hmm. if I'm not allowed to uh, defend you on the field of battle because that would be sexist, at least I can uh, defend you by supporting you in this particular woke cause. And I'll just come alongside and say, go, you go girl <laughs> or whatever, yeah, yeah. whatever you, you, you think you need to say to support the woman uh, in question. But it really does mean that when when you're dealing with a woman who's uh, using uh, empathy to try to acquire power that's being exercised uh, illegitimately, then you need to just steel yourself and say, you know what, gal? It's not going to work on me, and I'm not going to let you get under my skin. And yeah, maybe I look like a jerk for telling you that you're behaving like a jerk, uh, but too bad. And I'm just going to stick to
1: it. You know, it's interesting you say that. I mean, and you're right. Um, I, but I think one of the things we often don't pay attention to is just how destructive actually that form of power is, because it it is it is a there's a cruel side to it. Because oh, yeah. if you if you are on the side of the one that has appeared as the trigger you're you have to be eliminated i mean that's how they the woke go at you so it isn't kind of it isn't kind of a a, a soft way back into the fold right constructive criticism it is to the death, get you out of being able to hurt or harm anyone with tough words or feelings or competitiveness or toxic masculinity. In other words, that kind of canceling is ruinous for a lot of men, even when they so happen to just be a, a type or the or the one that gets you know taken out because they can't get the you know the other bad ones out, so well, so it is you know,
0: for particularly particularly for guys who are uh, engaged in political matters. Yeah, that's right. Um, you know, in, in in corporate environments, but also in you know, uh, civic life. Uh, so yeah. some folks out there n- might know that I'm a candidate for city council in in the city of Battleground. And one of the things that I've had to kind of help my supporters understand is that for many of them, they've never really dealt with the kind of people that you and I know. Yeah. They they've more or less been sheltered. Uh, yeah. You know, maybe maybe they've been involved in some church controversy or something like that, but they've never mm-hmm. really gone up against somebody who really hates their guts mm-hmm. and would think nothing of ruining. Uh, your life. Yeah. But those are the people you run into in this world. And, and yeah. you know, we've, we've, we've met those people and known those people and had to deal with those people.
1: Yeah.
0: So the, the question I ask, uh, some of the people who are closer to me is just like, how cancel proof are you? Mm-hmm. Your association with me, if I find myself, uh, in the, in the sights of some of these people, there is collateral damage. Yeah. Are you ready for that? Mm. Uh, when I say that either people just their eyes glaze over because they have no ability to sort of envision what I'm talking about or their eyes grow wide as they start to see the implications of what I'm saying yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs>
0: at, you know, even the company that they may serve that has nothing to do with anything, uh, that I'm talking about. And anyway, uh, so, you know, you, I, I have to be very careful cause I'm not just concerned about myself. Mm -hmm. I'm concerned about a lot of other people who might, uh, find themselves, uh, in the line of fire, so to speak. But anyway, um, but yeah, we're, we're talking about some nasty folks who in the name of empathy and love will ruin your life
1: yeah 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 that that sums it up well
0: (laughs) yeah anyway that's that's uh, on that happy note let's wrap up this episode (laughs) thanks for listening to the theology podcast uh we hope that you won't be canceled uh when people discover that you have listened to this episode uh you've made it all the way to the end and as your reward you get to hear me ask you to support us. <laughs> we have a thing called Patreon and, uh, there are people who support us on Patreon and that, and that's deeply appreciated. Uh, we know that sometimes people, uh, find themselves at a point in life where they're financially not able to continue to support us. And so we need an ongoing sort of, uh, group of, you know, sort of, a uh, replenishment, uh, of people to support us in that, uh, uh, Effort or that that program, because we really do have expenses and uh, we need to pay the bills. Also, it helps when people give us a good rating on a on a on a podcasting platform. Uh, it what happens when that occurs is basically, you know, when Jesus said to the one who has more will be given, and to the one who doesn't have even what he has will be taken from him. Well, you can think about it like that on platforms that. You know, yeah. are out there like you know iTunes and stuff like that. The the the, the guys who've got twenty thousand five star reviews are like the first option that people are given when they ask, uh, "I'd like to have uh, the shows that I can listen to about theology," hmm. and so they get that one and the next one with nineteen thousand. And you have to go way down to 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 you know the third or fourth or fifth page to see us. <laughs> well, if our if our listeners. Would simply just go in and give us a rating, hopefully a good one, we would go up in the rankings and our show would grow in terms of its audience. Now, we've got a great audience. We've got, you know, about, about 10,000 people who listen to us every week. And we don't take that for granted at all. But if you want to see us uh, grow with regard to our audience, that's one of the ways you can do that. And of course, the other way is to just suggest listening to some of your friends. <laughs> well, enough for now. Thanks a lot and bye-bye. bye
1: the theology podcast is a ministry of trinity Reformed church in huntsville alabama if you like this podcast you might enjoy the book by jason cherry the making of evangelical spirituality available on amazon